To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org slash donate. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. Okay, let's talk about the rapture. Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom, y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I'm a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. So last year, I did an episode called Why Jesus Isn't Coming Back As Soon As You Think. And if you haven't seen it yet, I don't want to spoil it for you. So I'll just say that I talked about how Yeshua's return is indefinitely on pause because of how it relates to the salvation of Israel and the need for believers to share Yeshua with Jewish people. That as things stand right now in prophetic history, while his coming is still soon, as the scriptures say, the countdown is being held back. And the takeaway of this is that believers need to restart that clock by doing the work of bringing the good news of Yeshua to Jewish people that we can't simply wait around for Yeshua to come back for us and take us out of here. It's a really good episode, and I encourage you to watch it. But one of the reactions I got to the teaching by not a few people was how what I was saying is at odds with the prophetic timing of a pre-tribulation rapture. One comment was, Kevin, why have you completely ignored the pre-trib rapture, which occurs prior to the great tribulation and the day of the Lord. And another one said, the rapture and the return of Jesus to the earth are two different events, and so on. I also received messages asking me to reconcile the idea of the rapture with the point I was making in my teaching. So that's the reason for today's episode, to answer this issue of the rapture and to determine its level of compatibility with the prophetic linchpin of the salvation of Israel. Now, before we get into it, I just want to say that my own interest in any end-time topic lies mainly in how it influences our behavior practically today, especially as it relates to sharing Yeshua with Jewish people. Personally, I'm not particularly dogmatic about any eschatological topic. Therefore, this teaching isn't primarily meant to refute a pre-trib rapture although it might. So if you or someone you know holds strongly to the pre-tribulation rapture as a core fundamental doctrine, then this teaching isn't likely to change your mind. Just know that I don't consider this topic a deal breaker, and I hope it isn't one for you as well. My ultimate goal today isn't to disprove or defend any particular belief with regard to the rapture but to promote the importance of Israel's salvation as the key to setting God's plan for Yeshua's return and the salvation of the world back into motion. Okay? So let's start by defining some biblical terms. The word rapture in Christian theology comes from the Latin word rapio, meaning caught up. This is the root word that's used in the 4th century Bible translation, the Latin Vulgate, to translate the phrase, we will be caught away, as found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. In this passage, Paul's encouraging the Thessalonians with regard to the believers who've died, or as he puts it, fallen asleep. 
And he says to them, beginning in verse 13, And we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, so that you may not grieve, as also the remainder of people do who have no hope. For if we believe that Yeshua died and rose again, so also will God bring with him those fallen asleep through Yeshua. For this we say to you in the word of the Master, that we who are living, who remain until the coming presence of the Master, may not precede those asleep, because the Master himself, with a shout, with the voice of a chief messenger, and with the shofar of God, will come down from heaven, and the dead in Messiah will rise first. Then we who are living, who are remaining, will be caught away in the clouds together with them to meet the Master in the air, and so we will be always with the Master. So in the Latin Vulgate, we will be caught away is essentially we will be raptured. This is where the concept of what many call the rapture comes from, or what we might call more accurately in English, the catching away. Paul says that at the time of Yeshua's return, at the sound of the shofar of God, first, those believers who have died will rise from the dead, and then the believers who are alive will be literally caught up into the air to meet him. Additionally, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul appears to add to the description of this same event, beginning in verse 50. And I say this, brothers, that flesh and blood are not able to inherit the reign of God, nor does the decay inherit the imperishable. Look, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last shofar, for it will sound and the dead will be raised, undecaying, and we, we will be changed. So in addition to the catching away, all the believers who are resurrected from the dead, plus those who are already alive at the time of Yeshua's coming, our bodies will be physically changed, will no longer be trapped in these mortal bodies, and will be remade to live with him forever. The whole thing sounds both really scary and incredibly awesome, doesn't it? So that's what's meant by the rapture, or the catching away. Next, let's define the tribulation. The Bible describes all kinds of different tribulations that believers will have to experience and endure. Tribulation is an archaic word meaning trouble or suffering or oppression, which is how the MGLT translates it. But in the context of the catching away, what's most often referred to is the Great Tribulation, namely the one Yeshua talks about in Matthew 24. This is what he says in the ESV, beginning in verse 19. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be again. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, meaning believers in Yeshua, those days will be cut short. And the phrase great tribulation also occurs in Revelation 2.22 and 7.14. So this period of great tribulation will be the worst that the world will have ever seen. Believers, or the elect, 
will be running for their lives and suffering trials and oppression like never before. It's not going to be a fun time. Now, I'm not going to go into the length of the tribulation, which isn't explicitly taught in Scripture, but is generally calculated to be seven years, based on some passages in Daniel and Revelation. I'm also not going to address the accuracy or legitimacy of that assertion today. All we need to know now for the sake of discussion is that the tribulation will be a period of time during which believers will endure incredible suffering and oppression. So that's what's meant by the tribulation. Following the great tribulation, however, we get some good news. The next thing I want to define, which will help us in our discussion, is the day of the Lord, or the day of Adonai. A little further down the same passage in Matthew 24, we can pick up in verse 29, where Yeshua says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, that's Yeshua, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call or a great shofar, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So Yeshua says that immediately following the great tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fail. So he doesn't explicitly call it the day of the Lord here, but this is clearly what he's referring to as he's paraphrasing the prophet Isaiah in chapter 13, which says, beginning in verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Similarly, Joel 2.31 says, The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And for more context, Zephaniah also calls the day of the Lord a day of wrath in chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Verse 18. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end, he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So the day of the Lord, or the day of Adonai, for all intents and purposes, is judgment day. It's the time when God's judgment of the world commences and his wrath is poured out upon the earth. But the good news is that according to Yeshua, it's during this dark time that he'll return. Coming on the clouds of the heaven with power and glory and with the sound of a great shofar gathering the believers, 
just like we already saw in 1 Thessalonians. So for believers, the day of the Lord will be a time of great victory and salvation. And for everyone else, the beginning of God's severe judgment and vengeance. So now we've defined our terms, the rapture or the catching away, the tribulation, and the day of the Lord. These events and definitions are biblical and without dispute. But the question that many have is, in what sequence will these events occur, regardless of how clearly Yeshua depicts them in Matthew 24? According to Yeshua, there will be a time of great tribulation, immediately followed by the day of the Lord, then his return, his coming on the clouds to the sound of a great shofar and the gathering of the believers. Yet despite the harmony between what Yeshua says about his return and what Paul describes about the catching away, some believe that these are two separate events. Some say that the rapture occurs before the tribulation or pre-trib. Some say it's in the middle of the tribulation or mid-trib. And there are other views as well, including post-trib, after the tribulation. So what seems to call the sequence of events into question, especially for those who hold to a pre-trib rapture, is where Paul indicates that believers will be saved from God's wrath. Specifically, just after Paul describes the catching away in 1 Thessalonians 4, in chapter 5, verse 9, he says this, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to the acquiring of salvation through our Master Yeshua, the Messiah. So the thinking goes that while Paul doesn't actually say tribulation in this context, that wrath here is referring to the tribulation. Therefore, if believers aren't appointed to wrath, but are to be saved from it, then the rapture must be before the tribulation. That's a very oversimplified explanation of what pre-tribulationists believe. So this understanding hangs in large part on definition of terms. At least within pre-trib doctrine, there appears to be a kind of conflation between the tribulation, wrath, and the day of the Lord, depending upon who's teaching it. Because some teachers will make certain dispensational distinctions, while others will basically consider them all the same. As far as I can tell, I think this conflation might come from a misapplication of certain scriptures, one of which being Luke's version of the events of Matthew 24. Luke describes them this way in chapter 21, verses 23 through 28. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So while there are a lot of differences between this passage in Luke and what appears to be the parallel passage in Matthew 24, I can totally see and understand the harmonization. While Matthew refers to it as a time of great tribulation, Luke calls it a time of great distress and wrath. So assuming that Luke and Matthew are referring to the same event, then obviously the tribulation will also be a time of wrath. 
So then why is it a misapplication or conflation of terms to insist that the wrath of 1 Thessalonians 5.9 is referring to the tribulation? It's because the wrath being spoken of in 1 Thessalonians is explicitly made in the context of Paul's warning about the day of the Lord, which isn't the same thing as the tribulation. This is the plain reading of 1 Thessalonians 5.9, when we read it in context with the first verse, where Paul says, And concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you yourselves have known thoroughly that the day of Adonai will come in this way, as a thief in the night. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, such that the day would catch you as a thief. Because God did not appoint us to wrath, but to the acquiring of salvation through our master Yeshua, the Messiah. So Paul is very clearly here describing not the tribulation, but the day of Adonai. He says, the day of Adonai will come in this way, and says that they will be saved from the wrath that is in that darkness. And this understanding of wrath is also in harmony with the prophecies from Isaiah and Zephaniah that we just read. So just because wrath can also be attributed to the tribulation, according to Yeshua, that doesn't automatically exclude it from being attributed to anything else, especially the day of the Lord, which scripture attributes wrath to explicitly. The only way that I can see to make wrath here and elsewhere be referring to the tribulation is to also say that the tribulation is the same thing as the day of the Lord, which some teachers definitely teach. But despite the abundance of scriptures that describe the day of the Lord with its distinctive features, at minimum, the idea that the tribulation and the day of the Lord are the same directly contradicts the plain sense of Yeshua's teaching, who clearly puts one immediately after the other. So if we aren't conflating terms, then there's no conflict between the idea of believers going through the tribulation, but being saved from God's wrath on the day of Adonai, the time which immediately follows the great tribulation, according to Yeshua. Now, again, the arguments for a pre-tribulation rapture and other eschatological doctrines can get pretty elaborate. And my intention here isn't to exhaustively address any of them, but only to point out that there are plain readings of Scripture which legitimately challenge those beliefs. My goal here has simply been to define terms and to offer an alternative biblical perspective to the pre-trib end-time sequence of events, namely the face-value reading that the Great Tribulation will be followed by the Day of the Lord, and then the catching away at the return of Yeshua. Where this all starts to tie in with the salvation of Israel as the linchpin for starting up these end-time events is how the mere existence of Messianic Jews like myself further challenges the concept of a pre-tribulation rapture. It's been a relatively new development for Jewish believers in Yeshua to continue to identify with the full force of Scripture behind us as both simultaneously members of the people of Israel and the body of Messiah. That there's no biblical requirement whatsoever to divorce ourselves from our Jewishness or our people in order to follow Yeshua. And while dispensationalists 
who separate out the salvation of Israel from the so-called church age, while they reject this reality for Messianic Jews, claiming that a Jew who believes in Jesus is now simply considered a Christian, the separation of these two identities for Jewish believers is nevertheless a false dichotomy. But it's this biblical truth for believing Jews, as spiritual and physical Israel, that pre-tribulationists and others have historically failed to take into account when considering whether all believers alive at the time will endure or escape the tribulation. In the Jewish New Testament commentary on Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, David Stern points out how this makes the pre-trib view problematic. If Jewish believers are members both of Israel and of the Messianic community, pre-tribulationists must answer this question. When the rapture takes place, do Jewish believers in Yeshua stay behind with the rest of physical Israel? Or do they join the rest of the Messianic community with Yeshua in the air? They can't be in both places at once. And in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15b through 17, he adds, To me, it is unthinkable that Messianic Jews are to be faced with the decision at the tribulation of whether to identify with their own people, the Jews, and stay to suffer, or with their own people, the believers, the Messianic community, the church, and escape. So in other words, if Jewish believers are just as much Israel as Jewish unbelievers, which we are, and unbelieving Israel doesn't escape the tribulation, then believing Israel doesn't escape the tribulation either. Therefore, neither do Christians. Again, by the mere existence of Messianic Jews like me, we're essentially in the way of pre-tribulation rapture theology, as Dr. Stern explains. And this brings us back to why the idea that the salvation of Israel, the Jewish people, as the linchpin that restarts the clock on all these end-time events, doesn't need to take a pre-tribulation rapture into account. Because since Yeshua himself teaches us that we won't see him again until all Israel receives him as Messiah, then that means whether Israel is saved before a pre-trib rapture or prior to the initiation of the day of the Lord or any time in between is in a very real sense irrelevant. Israel's salvation, according to Yeshua, still needs to happen first. That was the whole point of my original teaching. And as for the timing of a pre-trib rapture specifically, in addition to the plain sense of the scriptures that pre-tribulationists need to overcome, we now see that Messianic Jews are also a practical and theological obstacle to that view. Because despite the perspective and theology of many Christians, the entire Bible, including the parts about the tribulation, isn't Christian-centric, but Israel-centric. The Bible is one complete story about how God uses Israel, the Jews, to bring reconciliation and restoration to the world. Christians, or believers from among the nations, rely on the Jewish people not simply as those through whom God brought the covenants and the Messiah, but eventually who will ignite the salvation of all the earth. That's the point of believers needing to take the sharing of Yeshua with Jewish people seriously. 
because it not only blesses the apple of God's eye, but it leads Israel to finally do their ultimate job and hastens your own homecoming to Yeshua. But just for sake of argument, let's say that I'm reading the scriptures completely wrong where it comes to a pre-trib rapture or mid-trib rapture or whatever. That doesn't change the fact that the end-time event of the salvation of all Israel, as Paul teaches in Romans 11, brings us closer to our goal. Why wouldn't we want to do everything we can, especially sharing Yeshua with God's own people, in order to more quickly bring about the catching away? Because regardless of whether you reckon the rapture to come before the tribulation, in the middle of it, afterward, or some other time, the salvation of Israel will accelerate the coming of the day of Adonai and the return of Yeshua, which we all long to see. Again, as Peter teaches us in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, and it will come the day of Adonai as a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a rushing noise and the elements will be dissolved with burning heat and the earth and the actions in it will be found out. With all these being dissolved in this way, what kind of people ought you to be in holy behavior and godly acts? The kind who are waiting for and hastening the coming presence of the day of God. And let's not forget how Paul urges us in Romans eleven thirteen through 15 regarding the Jewish people. I will glorify my service if by any means I will arouse to jealousy those of my own flesh and will save some of them. For if their rejection of Messiah is a reconciliation of the world, what will their reception of him be, if not life out of the dead? The point of the teaching that I did, which prompted this one, that Yeshua isn't coming back as soon as you think, again, I encourage you to watch it, was to demonstrate how Christian theology and eschatology generally considers Israel's salvation an afterthought rather than something that we should not only be actively participating in, but recognizing as the ignition key to all end-time events. None of us should be holding so tightly to a belief like a pre-tribulation rapture, which isn't explicitly stated in Scripture and is hardly considered widespread settled doctrine, that we'd rather risk delaying Yeshua's return than even entertain the idea that sharing Messiah with Jewish people literally affects your future, that God actually expects you to daily put your faith into action in all areas of life rather than just biding your time and waiting to be unexpectedly caught up into the air to be with Jesus. The end of any eschatology shouldn't be the eschatological conclusions themselves, but rather having an expectation of the future for the exact reason that Yeshua and Paul and Peter brought it up in the first place, to cause us to be ready to persevere and, through our godly actions, to hasten the day of God. I hope this teaching has helped to put some things into perspective for you and maybe even given you some things to think about. And as usual, if you have any questions, my email is at the end of the episode. Please feel free to reach out. I'll leave you then with this final thought that I shared in the previous teaching. As followers of Messiah, this is our time to accept responsibility, 
to hasten Yeshua's return because that's what our God has been patiently waiting for us to do. Let's stop looking to the sky, hoping to see a sight that may not yet be able to come, and instead accept the task before us to do our part to prepare the Jewish people to finally fulfill theirs. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org to support the work of Perfect Word Ministries and MJMI with your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, and ring the bell to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, leave me a comment, or shoot me an email at kevin at perfectword.org. That's kevin at perfectword.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting a right, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom. Shalom.